Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us for the first time in 2023 for the INC preview show. My name is Carl Birmage and I am joined by the man on the right hand side of my screen. He is the Aid Edmondson to my Rick Mail. It's Joe Neal. Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. Glad to be the Scott Steiner to your Rick Steiner, Steiner Bros. Uh, pre Dogface Gremlin, I'm not going to call you that. I like my gig here. I have been called that many times by uh, a number of girls over the years. Uh, same here. Uh, I'll drink to that. <laughs> yeah. We could spend the next hour or so talking about uh, dad jokes, but you're here to listen to us talk about mixed martial arts and to talk about UFC 283. It's going to be taking place in a week's time over in Brazil. The first Brazilian card which has been held since 2020. The first one in front of a crowd since 2019. And I have to say, Joe... Bearing in mind what's been happening in the world of mixed martial arts over the past month, we've had a couple of very, very dark stories from Dana White, Phil Baroni, um, Victoria Lee, unfortunately, um, God bless her soul. We need to be talking about what's happening in Cage. And thankfully, I think we've got a card coming up, which is going to, it's going to create a lot of headlines. It's going to be very entertaining. Um, and I think a worthy welcome back to Brazil for the UFC. I, I'm actually really excited for this card. Uh, the more I kind of sit on it and think after reviewing the main card over and over, I'm like, this is this should be a really good card. It's a good return to form since we're going back to Brazil after so long. And I think as well, because I saw a lot of people in sort of like the weeks before 282, they were seeing what the Brazil card was potentially looking like. And there was a lot of people who were maybe put off by it. Adding mm -hmm. that second title fight as contrived and as controversial as that is, and we'll get into that later on in the show, I think it has helped boost the card. This looks like a pay-per-view worthy of paying your $70, $80 for. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's like 90 bucks here, I think. and But, it, you know. Yeah. So we are going to be talking about the card in a lot more detail. Before we do that, though, we want to say a big thank you to everyone who's tuning in for the first time. Anyone who's joining us again hasn't been scared off by uh, what the sport's been up to over the past four weeks. Um, if you do want to be supporting the channel in any way you can, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash it's not cage fighting. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash incagefighting. You can also follow Joe on many of his exploits in the world of Twitch. Joe, where's the best place to go? Uh, check me out at twitch.tv slash locojo39. Uh, I mostly stream like like Magic the Gathering right now, but uh, I'm trying to upgrade pieces on my PC to you know play other games that won't run as a PowerPoint. So <laughs> it's kind of do that. But I'm also on Twitter, you know, always trying to crack jokes and be a little bit of a clown. Playing many great games. Yeah. You are sort of like the V1 of this team, I've noticed. The workhorse. I, I've noticed, I noticed that too, but uh, I don't know if I want to get into a, a, um, a what's it called, a, a, a or Saturday Night Wars with TNA like he did. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, his, uh, his TNA Wars, or, uh, and he beat TNA. <laughs> Uh, so we are going to be talking about what's happening on UFC 283. Now, before we get to the main card itself, we're going to be breaking down all of the fights on the main card. Before we do that, though, we're going to be talking about the prelims. You can see those on our screen right now. And we've got a great selection here of, quite obviously, being in Brazil. We've got a lot of Brazilian fights on there. 
a lot of promotional newcomers, guys stepping in on short notice. The biggest name, though, featuring on this card is one we're going to be focusing on first and foremost, because after a near 20-year career in the sport, Maurizio Shogun Hero will be calling it a day. His fight against Ihor Pateria will be his last in the sport. It was originally supposed to be on the main card, but it got shipped around at the last minute. So, before we actually talk about how we think that fight's going to go, what's your opinion on Shogun? What is Shogun's legacy going to be to a lot of MMA fans? I think to a lot of fans, sadly, it's it's we're sadly in a sport that's uh, what have you done for me lately, uh, where is like, well, what's he done for me lately? You know, kind of lose, kind of be hit or miss where he'll occasionally get a win off of a off of a fighter at 205. Um, and so I'm sadly, I feel like a lot of fans aren't going to remember him for the legend that he is, because I think personally, he's got to be top three ever at 205. Um, I, I think. Like everyone talks about their mythical fighters, C level Kane and you know, motivated Connor and all that. I have Shogun at twenty-three at the top of that list. Shogun at twenty-three in Pride is probably the best fighter I've ever seen outside of like C level Kane. Um he was unbelievable. He's been fighting for years and years and years, and he like had a horrible knee injuries, several knee injuries, and he still became a champion in the UFC while having some of the most entertaining fights ever. Uh I really hope I get to review his fights, his first fight with Dan Henderson on the Retro Review series, because that is one of the all-time greatest fights, uh, probably the best non-title fight five-rounder in the in, in UFC history. UFC 139, it's an absolute classic. Yeah, great card too. Like I remember the card being good, but that that fight is unbelievable. Because that was Vandalay versus Kung Lee as well, I believe. Yeah, that fight is super underrated. That one co-fight of the night honors, and it didn't really deserve it because it's not as good as the main event, but it was such a good fight that you kind of had to give it something. That fight is great. Um, I mean, I, even though he lost, Crow Cop was on that card against Roy Nelson, and uh, I like both those guys, so. Yeah, I, I'd certainly love to do that one for a retro review. So patreon.com if you do want to nominate that one. We have actually got a couple of uh, Patreon nominees, which will be coming up over the next couple of months. Uh, do we fancy oh, yeah. Shogun's chances to get a win on his way out? Uh, I really hope so. Uh, I, I've, I'm kind of of the I'm a kind of a downer when a fighter is like on the way out. It's really hard for me to pick them to win. I, I think I subconsciously go like nothing against Frankie Edgar, one of my all time favorites, but when his last fight. I think I picked Gutierrez to win. I said, oh, Frankie could do it. I really hope he can. But part of me really wanted, you know, uh, was part of me really was leaning towards Gutierrez, who I know with low kicks and everything. But anyways, it's really hard for me to pick them. I think I do it subconsciously so I don't get my hopes up just to get heartbroken again. Uh, but man, I, I hope he does it. I, I love Shogun. He's one of my favorite fighters ever. I think the last guy who announced that it was going to be his last fight and then ended up winning... I'm tempted to say I think it was Dennis Bermudez. Yeah. Uh, he... I think it was him. Because he retired relatively young. And, like, I, I can't think of anybody else. I mean, Joanna didn't say that was her last fight going into the second Wiley Zhang fight. Um, uh, Brad Pickett. Uh, Brad Pickett versus uh, Faber. Faber did announce it. But, of course, Faber came back, so... Yeah. Uh, Mark Munoz was there another you one. Go. I, I just not trying to. Or uh, one of your boys. It, 
Yeah, one of my boys, I was like, I almost said, I don't want to spoil anything. It's like, oh, no, wait, I'm getting the Patreon and the next retro review mixed up. I did cover it, yeah, and Mark Munoz did win his fight with Luke Barnett, uh, which he said was going into it was his last fight. Um, looking through some of the other fighters on this card, I think the other name that really stands out to a lot of people is a guy who a lot of hardcore fans are getting excited about, Jalton Almeida. Absolutely. I, ha I had that down here, too. Um he he's looking great. Like he's at heavyweight, and I'm not trying to sound mean or negative here. Heavyweight historically isn't great, um, like in terms of its depth, at least. Like obviously, there's greats like DC Cormier or <laughs> DC Stipe, Fedor, Kane, JDS, all that. But like in terms of depth, there's usually only like two or three guys that have like real promise and potential, and like uh, very skilled. It's not a skilled division, I guess someone could say. Um, it's more of like an athletic division and physical attributes. But Jelton Almeida looks fantastic in there. Um, and he's kind of bringing in like this. Like there's a, there's a couple of prospects, I feel like, that at uh, at heavyweight that are looking really good. And he's got to be up there near the top for me. The one thing that stands out for me for Jelton, which I've seen this in a lot of other divisions with a lot of other prospects, are we starting to see a new meta in the sport? And we'll see this with Jalton, where the first thing these prospects are doing, they are immediately shooting for takedowns. Is this like a new meta we're seeing in the sport? Yeah, he'll come out with like a snap kick, then double leg, like really hard. Uh, I've, I've seen that lately. I see a lot of Brazilians do it lately, so I don't know if it's something that, that they're just kind of ingrained like, or kind of slowly leaning towards. Um, it's, I think it's always interesting seeing like the different kind of metas, metas, as like we say, uh, with different nationalities, but I've seen like a lot of Brazilians do that lately. And I, 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 I hope that kind of catches on cause it's kind of interesting. It's a little predictable if like you have a really good knee or an uppercut. So I hope it doesn't bite them, but, uh, at heavyweight with like speed being a little lower, you might be able to like really abuse that, get away, get with, away it. with it. And I expect yeah. him to beat Shamil. Uh, Almeida oh, yeah. is like a minus 900 favorite, so he's the biggest favorite on the card. And I think Shamil's one of those guys who, I mean, I keep looking at the rankings and thinking, how is he still there? He's, it's almost like he's there because of like, what he fought Derek Lewis in the main event once, and he's had like a permanent fixture of the top 15 since. I'm going to be honest, and I'm not I'm saying this with all the respect in the world. I don't think I've ever seen him win. I think I've only ever seen him get beaten by ranked heavyweights that use him as like on their resume of, Hey, I have a ranked win. And it's a little off. Like, obviously if I look at his like record on topology, I go, Oh, I see wins here. Like he's, he, he's staying employed, but I don't think I've ever seen him. Like, it's just so odd to me. Like, uh, that he, I, I do agree. Like, how is he ranked? He's just perpetually ranked. Maybe he got it in the contract. Uh, that's kind of a pretty good gig. I'd imagine, you know, any other big names that stand out for you on the prelims? Uh, I have Nicholas Dalby because I just wanted to bring up his fight with Ross Houston. I love if that you know, fight. you know. Yeah. Uh, to my friend, I have a couple of friends who love MMA. They don't follow it, but they really like the 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 you know the carnet the the carnal primal violence of it. And I always go, "Hey guys, check this one out." So the fight I always open up with. Uh, Robocop is opening up the, the prelims, which is awesome. Like that guy is a blast and a half. I've been, uh, covering him on the, like for fight night cards, I recap. 
and that's always great. Like, he is a blast and a half to watch. Um, and Terrence McKinney was the last one I had, uh, who's, you know, had a... There were so many good fights last year, but, God, his fight with Drew Dober is somehow didn't make my top five, barely, and that fight is fantastic. Uh, Terrence McKinney's really explosive. Could be another, like, really quick, exciting, explosive fight. Very kill or be killed. And I think that's something that oh, yeah. you can always say about McKinney because I know he's pushing for the Paddy Pimblett fight. Whether or not he's going to get it, whether he does enough to earn it, or more likely, if the UFC think, no, we're going to keep this Paddy train going a little bit longer, give him someone a little bit easier. Yeah, they're, they're never going to give him that one. They, if they see any inkling of power, they ain't getting that fight. I mean, you believe that, well, a lot of people believe that um, Jared Gordon won that fight, didn't you? Yeah, I was a pre- it, it, it's kind of weird to me to say this, but that wasn't even in my that was in my top three worst decisions last year. And I, I, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, that's awful. It's like, ah, this is it's sadly starting to feel like another day at the office. We've got ourselves a text there. So while you read that text, we've got us. <laughs> this is more important. Yeah. Fight number one. So we're going to go to the important stuff, which is our main card. Fight number one. We're going to be kicking it off in the light heavyweight division. It is my boy, Paul Craig, taking on many people's boy, Johnny Walker, number nine seed versus number 12. You can get Johnny Walker here as a minus 170 favorite. Paul Craig comes in at plus 145. Uh, a lot of people billing this one as a battle of light heavyweight meme fighters. Would you say that's fair or not? That's not fair. Paul Craig isn't a meme to me. Johnny Walker now. Uh, but Paul Craig isn't a meme to me. I don't think that's fair. <laughs> So we'll start off by talking about Paul Craig. So a 16-5 record, one of those as well, a draw, which was against Shogun Chiwa, actually in Sao Paulo. So Shogun and Paul Craig in Brazil. So I thought that was a good connection there. Um, I do find it interesting that there's this sort of perception of Paul Craig. And I know his fighting style is very one-dimensional. I know that guard players can sometimes get ridiculed when things don't go their way. We saw that with what happened against... Uh, Claudio Puelles against Dan Hooker. But Paul Craig was on his six-fight unbeaten streak. He had that fight against Volkan Uzdemir, which unfortunately didn't go his way. But somebody pointed this out. We've all heard about all of the sort of saga that's been happening with the light heavyweight division and how they've had to go further and further down the totem pole to find an opponent for Glover. Someone pointed this out. If Paul Craig had beaten Volkan... Bear in mind, he also beat Jamal Hill. He would have been fighting Glover this Sunday. Yeah, he actually... Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I thought you were going to bring up uh, if they did Jamal Hill on Goliath. That crazy statistic. Yes. But that's a crazy one. It's like, yeah, good, awesome Paul Craig. Yeah, like, because he would have been, what, number six in the rankings. He would have had a win over Jamal Hill. Like, you're not going to have mm. Glover... You're not going to have Yana uh, Van Klyev. You're not going to have Anthony Smith because he's coming off a loss. It would have been Paul Craig. I think they still would have went with Jamal Hill, sadly. That's something me and uh, me and my best friend always talk about is we always go like, you know, Jamal Hill's kind of rise kind of back post-Paul Craig loss. It has been impressive. Paul Craig wasn't getting the attention. It, it's It's been unbelievable. And we're going to talk about that later. But no one, where's the Paul Craig love? Like, you know, for that. Like, I, I thought... That's a win that aged really, really well for Paul Craig. And it wasn't that long ago. 
And Paul Craig wasn't getting the attention for it. Like the Vulcan Ozdemir fight was kind of like a, an afterthought for a lot of people. Whereas like Jamal Ayo's fights were main, you know, main eventing in an apex card, but still like, you know, it's still a spotlight. It was really odd. So I, I sadly think they would have given it to Jamal Hill still. So let's talk about Paul Craig in a lot more detail. He has got a lot of notable wins, which you've mentioned before, Ankalaev and Jamal Hill, but also Nikita Krylov, uh, Shogun Hua and Kennedy and Chenzuku. A 100% finishing rate. He's only ever been to the judges twice in his career, which was the Shogun draw and the loss against Volkan Usamir. So, as we mentioned before, very much a kill-or-be-kill fighter. And a novelty when it comes to a weight class, especially like 205, in being a pure BJJ guy. Like, do you think this style of fighting can still work in MMA? Uh, I think at heavyweight in 205... Oh, man, it sounds like I'm ragging on them today. I'm not. <laughs> but I'm not. Uh, but uh, I think at those divisions, yeah, I think when when a lot like a lot of those divisions, it's very much of like your athleticism and like your expl- like how explosive you are can really kind of carry you through a lot. I, I think you can have a lot of success having that kind of athleticism and being a jujitsu guy, you know, having that extra like especially a specialty wrinkle like that um, can do it. I don't think though at the highest level at 205, it's going to be a little problem. Like if he fought Glover or, or if you know, Jerry was, uh, wasn't hurt or them as I, I love Paul Craig, I think that'd be a really hard sell to say Paul Craig would win those fights. Um, but that said, I, I'm going to enjoy this right while I can uh, as a former grappler myself, it is, a treat to watch. It's like watching Frank Mir back in the day who was kind of that way for him. Like he, they, that's who they remind me of. They, they kind of mirror each other in ways. So, you know, in fairness, you never know Paul Craig, if you go to the ground with him, it's, it's pretty scary. So it just kind of takes that one mistake. You could kind of have that, but, um, I think he's going to run into the same troubles that Damian Maya ran into at middleweight. Yes. Um, I think the big thing that Paul Craig needs to work on, and we have seen attempts for him to try and do so, is I, I do think BJJ as a base can still work. I mean, we've seen with Charles Oliveira what he's been able to do. But what Charles is mm. very good at is he's very good at sort of utilizing sort of like distance kicks to try and close the distance, get into the clinch, and then work his magic. Paul doesn't really have that side of his game fully developed yet. So instead, we get what we saw against Volkan, which is him trying to pull guard, trying to lure his opponent into his trap. And you can get away with that against sort of like your unranked opponents, your Chenzakus of the world. But when it gets to this sort of top 10 level, it becomes much harder. Yeah, we saw that with Ozdemir, who shut him down by just not engaging on the ground, who forced it into a kickboxing match. And just kind of slowly started shrugging off all of these takedown attempts and attempts at clinching. That's another thing, too, is uh, whenever you're in the clinch with Paul Craig, like, if you look at the guy, like, he is huge. He is a, you know, a Vince McMahon wet dream. You know, he is a big, very strong. Oh, yeah, he's a beefy boy, big, sweaty lad. Uh, And he is, um, like, if he gets you in the clinch, he's going to throw you. He's going to trip you. He's very good at that. But he does seem to kind of struggle with closing the distance. Mm-hmm. Like I noticed that in the Ozdemir fights, and uh, that that's a that's another fear I have is like he doesn't have the striking to help him close that distance. 
so that's always the thing I kind of worry about with his style. And I worry as well about his striking defense as well, which I think is one of the big weaknesses he has. Because mm-hmm. the one thing I've noticed with Paul Craig is when he's moving forward, he's using this sort of like hunched down style. I'm ready to shoot. I'm going to shoot on you. Sort of like try and lure mm-hmm. his opponents. But when he's going backwards and he's put under pressure, head goes straight up. And that's a big yeah. concern I have, especially against someone like Johnny Walker, who we know can crack. Oh, yeah. And even when he's like moving forward, like he's hunched down, he almost kind of protrudes his neck out a little bit. And I go, man, that is a knee, like just waiting to happen. And if he if he moves in at the wrong timing and his opponent has his timing, it, it's a little worrying. And uh, Johnny Walker used to be this finishing machine. Yep. We're going to talk about that finishing machine now, 19-7 and seven record. He is coming to this fight off a win. He beat Ion Kutalaba at USC 279. One of the few non-catchweight fights on that card, because that was a mess of the show. <laughs> um, it's safe to say it's been a roller coaster USC career for Johnny Walker. He was hyped at one point as being the guy that's going to dethrone John Jones, which... Personally, I never really bought into the hype. I thought, yes, a lot of spectacular highlight reel wins, but I thought there were too many sort of weaknesses. Then it reached a stage where people were calling for him to be cut from the UFC. I remember I yeah. remember seeing that, especially if he'd lost to Kutalaba, the pressure would have really been on him. But now we've sort of got this middle ground. Has he found his level as sort of like a fun, entertaining guy just around or underneath the top 10? I think he's found his kind of niche in terms of where he's at, like in terms of what his ability is and where they're kind of ranking him. I think that's fair. I think his ranking is fair. Um, I think the big problem is he, he's just struggling to find that coach, like where he's at right now. I mean, obviously he got to finish in his last fight, um, but I, I don't think where he's at is really fit, is melding with his normal style and his, like mentality and attributes for fighting. Uh, like when he, he was, I felt like he was, uh, the, the John Jones thing was always like, ah, come on, you know, but I remember it was him and Yuri that were kind of sparking all the, everyone's attentions. And, it, you know, then the Corey Anderson fight happened, which really derailed Johnny Walker. And then Jamala Hill, you know, really kind of, you know, sent it further down. It, it's, I think I think when he's that Muay Thai whirlwind, I think was whenever he was at his most dangerous. But he also kind of is that killer be killed guy, as well. Uh, and I think that just kind of caught up to him. So, but I, I really think the big problem is like, you know, he's very content to just low kick and jab and circle, where he's at now, and uh, at a SB, SBG. And I, I don't know. I, that kind of worries me a little bit. He hasn't been as as exciting and as explosive. But, hey, you know, he's having his success. And that's all that matters at the end of the day. I will play devil's advocate uh, in regards to SBG. Bearing in mind that Johnny Walker does have issues with his chain. He can get rocked very easily. I like the idea of making him be a little bit more conservative and maybe being a bit more of a point fighter. I do like that idea in principle. But when Johnny Walker's biggest strengths are his explosiveness, you're putting him in a situation where he's not able to utilize that. Like someone made the analogy, it's like using a Ferrari as an off-road car. Yeah. 
it's it's odd too. I, I thought the SBG move would have been pretty good because if you look at early Connor, his best attribute, you know, obviously is power and accuracy and timing, all that noise. But um, what I thought is explosiveness. It was very explosive. Whenever he had you hurt, he was pretty quick to jump on you and have a measured but explosive attack to put you away. I thought that sounds like a pretty good idea for Johnny Walker. And because you're still utilizing that explosiveness, but no, they're they're very content with him just kind of pointing it out and circling, like don't overextend, just very non-committal stuff. And it, it, it's just odd. It kind of rubs me the wrong way. But you know, I, I'm not a coach, so I that can just kind of sit here. That being said, one thing we did see in the Kutalaba fight, we did see a new wrinkle to his game, which was him getting the win by submission. And it does mm -hmm. make this fight very interesting, bearing in mind that Paul Craig has such a grappling prowess. Could Johnny Walker be willing to try and engage with Paul Craig on the ground? God, that'd be dumb. But, uh, you know, he might. Uh, it's funny. Paul Craig mentioned that he wants to try his hand standing with him. And if Johnny Walker has the other thought, that could be kind of funny to see that Paul Craig wants to get out there and, you know, toss the jab out and kind of kickbox. Whereas Johnny Walker might look for the takedown. It'd be kind of a funny inverse. But uh, I, I think this fight feels very much like that classic striker grappling matchup. Um, it's good. I, it, Johnny Walker did showing off the wrinkles was good because Nikita Krylov kind of just held him down and got him down consistently in their fight. So... It's it's good to see him kind of round himself out for sure, and it was honestly that was actually a pretty decent fight if I remember right. I think this fight is basically going to come down to which is stronger, Johnny Walker's grappling mm -hmm. or Paul Craig's striking. Which whatever one of those two comes out on top, I think is the person who's going to win this fight. Personally, based on what I've seen in the past couple of matchups, I think the Walker has the abilities on the ground to survive any attack that Paul Craig has. And if Paul Craig does get lured into a striking match, bearing in mind how explosive Walker can be, I don't see it ending well for Paul Craig. So I'm going to pick Johnny Walker to win this one. And I'm going to pick second round. Second round KO. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with Craig. I, I agree with everything you said there. But... I, I can see Johnny Walker winning. I, my, my, I'm kind of stuck between two. Johnny Walker, I think, could just kind of outpoint him and shut him down in the striking and neutralize the grappling. But I think if Paul Craig gets it to the floor, I think having you know that big old dude on top of you, I think he's going to wear it wear you out. Yes. And from my, my experience is grappling, even if you're good enough to kind of you know defend against the bigger, stronger guy, if the bigger, stronger guy is just as skilled as you, and that's just in this hypothetical, uh, you're in for a long, long time, and he's probably going to get you. Uh, it's so exhausting having someone who's stronger, bigger than you on top. And uh, Johnny Walker's a big guy too, but, man, uh, I think Paul Craig can get him down eventually. And I think from there he's going to probably lock in another, take another arm, maybe take a neck. Um, I could sadly see it kind of ending. I hate bringing this fight up; uh, it hurts me. But sadly, see it ending like the second Shogun fight, um, where he just kind of has a dominant position and just 
gets a chance to pound away, gets it. I think he's going to get it done on the ground here. And I will say as well that Johnny Walker did show some issues with his conditioning against Krylov, especially in that third round, because mm -hmm. he actually ended up on top of Krylov at one point, but he was too tired to do anything with it, and Krylov just re reversed position. So I think if mm -hmm. Craig is able to have long periods of grappling, we could see those cardio issues come into the fore again with Johnny. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 grappling is so exhausting, and especially if you're on your back. So... I think that problem could rear its ugly head. And I'm not saying MMA math works. I'm just saying this is how the matchup looks. I just realized the MMA math there. Yeah, MMA math just does not make any sense. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Yep. Fight number two, will there be any grappling in this women's flyweight bout? Our number four seed, Lauren Murphy, is taking on the number six seed, Jessica Andrade. Despite this, though, despite the rankings, Andrade, massive favor for this one. Minus 450. You can get Lauren Murphy at plus 360. And I want to start by talking about Jessica Andrade first and foremost. Now, I think we can safely say we're both big Jessica Andrade fans here. Very entertaining fighter. <laughs> probably one of the most explosive, exciting brawlers you can get in women's MMA. With that being said, though, am I the only one who's been a little bit raising an eyebrow over how the UFC have been booking her recently. Because she had that title fight against Shevchenko, didn't go her way. And since then, she's sort of been jumping around flyweight and strawweight. So like, just taking any fight whichever way it comes. And it kind of reminds me of Rich Franklin after the Anderson Silva fight, where he was just fighting anyone and anyone between two weight classes. And I was like, should the UFC make Andrade to commit to one weight class? Like, what's going on here? It, it's so... I hate it. I, I personally just hate it. Um, I, I think in terms of putting on exciting fights, it's it's a very good idea yes. to have someone who's exciting who isn't going to... Let's say you have no confidence in someone being champion. Having someone bounce around in two divisions to uh, put on just the most exciting fight to kind of bolster cards. It's a very fun idea in matchmaking. But I, I like my integrity, sadly, in my divisions and everything like that. Uh, Amanda Lemos uh, is looking very good at 115. Jessica Andrade beat her last year. And it's like, oh, but now, well, where's Jessica Andrade at? She's fighting at 125 now in another division. Yeah, you made and a really good point there, so Lemos. Because, yeah. like, there's a lot of people saying that Whaley versus Lemos is a title fight that's going to happen. That fight is instantly a harder sell. Because people remember what happened to Lemos against Andrade. Yeah, I, I gave her no Lemos no chance against Marina Rodriguez, and I mean I looked stupid, but I, I gave her no chance because all I could remember was that the recency bias of Jessica Andrade tapping her out with the standing arm triangle. I think that was like one of my first fights I recapped. So I mean I remember that fight perfectly, and uh, it was like. Oh, okay. And now she's going up here to take on another, you know, someone who's who's on a pretty decent run, who has a really good last win. And it, it's kind of it, it it just irks me the wrong way. It feels like we're having her just kill contenders off for no actual payoff. Yes. And especially in the women's divisions, which are a little bit thinner when it comes to contenders. And I mean, I have no issue with Jessica Andrade as a fighter. And it, it again, yes. she creates very entertaining fights. So I have no issue with that. But you've got to think bigger picture sometimes. 
Oh yeah. I, I'm, I, I love Andraj. She's, uh, she's awesome. She's so much fun. She is, uh, my Vanderlei Silva of this generation and it's awesome. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about her opponent though, because this is, there are two fighters on this, um, in this matchup. It's not just the Jessica Andraj show. And I have to shout out Lauren Murphy here. And I know that Lauren Murphy isn't the most popular fighter online. I think what happened in the Ultimate Fight is a big factor in that. Um, and I think there's some sort of prejudices maybe that go with her as well, which I find that quite unfair. But here is a woman who was 39 years old, spent the majority of her UFC career as a journeywoman. Like she was on the verge of getting mm. cut as a bantamweight. And yet yeah. just started putting everything together at a time of her career when... When most female fighters like retiring when they're 33, 34, and yet he is 39-year-old Lauren Murphy, who goes on this great run of form, fights for a title, and then beats Misha Tate. So you've got to give her some kudos for that. Oh yeah. She it's I, I love late career resurgences. I think that they're they're really cool. Uh, you know, like no matter who does it, you know, I, I was a big fan of the Aldo's last run. Um and like I, I love these career late career resurgences because uh, I, it kind of you know showing you know old dogs can learn new tricks kind of thing and uh, I, I always like that and she's kind of has like this underdog style to me like no one ever picks her to win no one ever does it and then she she gets a huge marquee win over Misha Tate uh, who was adamantly saying like I'm going for Shevchenko you know it, it, it's it's awesome like I I think it's really cool you know and. Uh, especially seeing how much people wrote her off after the Shevchenko loss. I think I've been doing some research and dead wrong me if I do get this incorrect. I think the last time that Lauren Murphy was a bookmaker's favorite going into a fight, I tempted to say Marva Barella. That was a long time ago. Mm. Yeah. I, again, I love. how do you not love the perennial underdog here? Like, I mean, I... I I don't understand why she isn't like a bigger like cult favorite, you know. Uh, it's a little odd to me, but sure. So we'll talk about some of Lauren Murphy's notable wins because she has quite quite a few of them. I was surprised to read up how many big names she's got on a portfolio here. So we got Giorgio Calderwood, Roxanne Modafferi, Andrea Lee, um, mm. Caitlin Young, Sarah Delelio, Sarah Delelio who beat Nunez. So there's your MMA math working out for you. <laughs> and the one most recently, Misha Tate. With that being said, though, I want to ask this question. How much of Lauren Murphy's win over Misha Tate was Lauren being the better fighter? And how much of it was Misha fighting at a new weight class and maybe being a bit past her prime? Was that a fight that Misha lost or one that Lauren won? I think Lauren won it. I, I'm glad you brought this up because I, <clears throat> I wrote that exactly. I added that this morning uh, to my notes. Um, cause I've seen that kind of get talked about online whenever it initially happened. And if I, I, I could be wrong, but I remember picking Misha Tate to win that fight. So at the time I was kind of thinking Misha Tate just lost it. Now looking back, really thinking about it and I haven't rewatched it, I'll, I'll admit, but I think about it and I think it's me just being salty cause I like Misha Tate. I, I think Lauren Murphy did win that fight legitimately. I think it was a, a Misha Tate win. Not a or sorry, a Lauren Murphy win, not a Misha Tate uh, loss in in that kind of uh, wording. Um, I, I think she just put on 
she just shut her down, you know. And I think the the weight the weight cut did hurt, but no, I, I don't think that should take away from her performance in that fight. What would you say are the big strengths of Lauren Murphy? What are the traits that she's sort of utilized into her game now that she maybe wasn't doing when she first came into the UFC? I, I like I really like she just seems gutsy, like like scrappy would be the word I think we've uh that gets tossed around with her a lot. Um it seems like it's sure her takedown defense is actually pretty good. Like I was actually pretty surprised by that. Um, I, I, I obviously I always think of the Shevchenko fight, but if you look at like her career, her career portfolio, you know, or her resume, I should say, as you said, like Roxanne Montefiore, uh, who can strike, but she's mostly going to try to dive on the legs for, for me in my mind. Uh, you know, a lot of good people there who she's had to shut down, like stop the takedowns of, uh, her striking is a little bare meat and potatoesy for me, but it, it's just constant, you know. Like, and her cardio, I, th- I think, seems really good. Like, she's almost always pressuring forward. Yes, and that cardio as well really holds up into the later rounds, because I think that's one oh, thing yes. that stands out for me is that Lauren may be behind in a lot of fights that she's had, but she's able to stay in the match and then mount the fight back. I think that's what won her the fight against Andrea Lee. It's what won her the fight against Marva Barella mm-hmm. because she was behind in that fight and then got the need to get the finish. So bearing in mind as well, like I think Andrade is somebody who we know how explosive she is. But sometimes mm-hmm. you do have questions over how much that explosiveness can hold up going into fights because uh, we saw that especially when she fought Ioana. Like, Andrade, was, oh, yeah. that was a competitive fight for the first two rounds, but the accumulation of shots that Andrade was taking just slowed it down to a crawl by the end. I think the final round was actually a 10-8 round, and it was purely stand-up. Yeah. It, it, that fight's great, if anyone hasn't seen it. It's a really good fight. But that fight I always think of, and I think of, of Rose 2, where, mm. like, it, it seems like Andrade is just taking, like, 100 shots, you know... Uh, and then, like, seems like she's kind of out of it, just tired. And then here comes a big left hook that just wobbles Rose. And it's like, oh, no. But it's like, oh, was that all she had there? Has she been gathering up and saving up her cardio energy to, like, throw the one big haymaker? Um, so I'm, I'm very curious about her her cardio as well, especially at 125. Because she hasn't – we haven't seen her go into the later rounds at 125 at no. all. Um Two first round, well, yeah, the, um, she had two first round finishes, which was Calvillo mm-hmm. and Caitlin Chukasian, and then got stopped in the second round against uh, Shevchenko. Well, that Calvillo one was at one twenty five. Oh, that was a that was a crazy one. Um, yeah, or it was. One of the things I've always found quite interesting about Andrade is she obviously she has this sort of aura, this mystique about her, but mm. we're talking about a fighter who's had nine losses in her career. And the way she's yeah. lost, it's very similar situations. It's either fighters who have the movement and the footwork to avoid the flurries or fighters who can neutralize her on the ground. It's sort of, maybe they're not stylistically the same, but it reminds me sort of Edson Barboza. Everyone talks about how feared mm. Barboza is, but we all know how Barboza gets beaten. And it's very similar with Andrade, in my opinion. The question is, does Lauren Murphy have the footwork or the grappling to neutralize Andrade, and I hate to say it, I don't think she does. I don't think so either. I 
like it's that perennial underdog thing. I'm a big fan of Jessica Andrade, but I love that underdog status of Lauren Murphy, and I really kind of want Lauren Murphy to win. I don't think she does here. Uh, Jessica Andrade, it just I, I think the matchup is just kind of bad for Lauren Murphy. Um, I think Lauren Murphy's chances are if you sur- if you survive the first round, you you make it a little difficult in round two. Round three, Jessica Andrade could be tired, and then. You know, here comes another, you know, ooh, excuse me, uh, another trademark Lauren Murphy, you know, gutsy performance win. I think that's the route to win for her. Um, but, man, it's going to be really hard to avoid all that power for five minutes. I mean, Lauren does have good boxing. And I could see mm-hmm. maybe in the opening stages of the fight, Lauren maybe getting a couple of shots off. But she doesn't have the power, in my opinion, to hurt Andrade. And I can see a situation where... Andrade, she's very good at corner cutting, just sort of swarming her, pressing her up against the fence, and either teeing off on her or using that to get the takedown. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lauren Murphy also, in her defense, I notice it's uh, very much like whenever her hands will come up to like here, and Jessica Andrade loves to throw a body hook. It That is kind of what my mental like image of the fight kind of seems to go. I, I, I feel like I remember Lauren Murphy having like really quick to throw the hands up uh, at any kind of like, you know, forward, uh, uh, forward pressure from like her opponent throwing hands. And I, I just kind of feel like, oh, am I going to see a Chukagian type finish here in the same way? Or I, I think the, I wonder how the body shots will also factor in with uh, Anjaj throwing that leather. Are you picking Andrade to win this one? I am. Yeah. Uh, I Part of me wants to root for Lauren Murphy here. And I might root for her in the night of. Uh, I don't know. I kind of go back and forth on who I want to root for. But uh, we're not. We're here to preview who we're picking to win, not who we're rooting for. So I am going with Andrade. I'm picking Andrade to win this one as well. I'm going to say, again, second round kill. I think Lauren Murphy's tough yeah. enough to avoid uh, being finished in the first round. But I think it just gets too much for her come the second Mm-hmm. I, I think this is a sleeper fight of the night pick, by the way. I uh, I think this fight could be very, very exciting. Uh, I, I always say it. Jessica Andrade is like my Vanderlei nowadays, uh, just coming out, guns blazing. And Laura Murphy's very, very tough. We could see some pretty extended exchanges that could be like kind of crazy to see, uh, especially for this division. So I, I think this fight could secretly be uh, – I don't think it will be the best fight of the night. I think that's – we're about to talk about that soon. But uh, – this fight could be very, very good, I think. Before we move on, you just sort of touched on it there with the flyweight division. And we finally end the sort of stigma around women's flyweight as, like, the worst weight class in the UFC, otherwise it's round. This is a really good weight class. Like, when you look at the talent coming through and the quality of the matches, I'm not saying it's, like, going to pass strawweight as the best women's division or anything like that, but... We've come a long way from, like, Montana De La Rosa versus Molly McCann. When you look at, like, Tyler Santos, Manon Fielro, Alexa Grasso, Casey O'Neill, Erin Blanchfield, you've got some talented fighters in this division now. This division's pretty good. Like, it, it's, it went from 125, okay. Like, I, I was one of those guys, for sure. Now I'm like... You know, now I go 125. Okay, it's getting pretty good. You know, but I think it's we're, we've we let the division grow organically, and while the promotion might not have been the best around it, we can say that for any division in the UFC, really. 
but uh, um, I think it's actually grown organically and it's actually turned into, I, I agree with you there, that it, it has become uh, an exciting division for sure. So there Especially you go. At the top. There you go, women's featherweight. There's hope for you yet. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that, that one's not happening. I'm, that's not a division, though. That's, that's your words, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> division, in inverted commas. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about a real weight class now. We are going up to welterweight for fight number three. It is Gilbert Burns, the number five seed, taking on Neil Magnini, number 12. Uh, Gilbert Burns, big favor for this one, minus 365. You can get Neil Magny at plus 300. Now, Gilbert Burns, he's coming into this fight off a loss. But in the eyes of a lot of people, in terms of their perception of him, it's almost treated like a win. So I'm going to pose this question to you because it was a big talking point pretty much since the fight happened back in April or May. Did Gilbert Burns expose Hamzat? No. I just think that is a. I've watched that fight. It feels like monthly. That's not quite true. Uh, I don't think he exposed him. I think if anything, Hamzat showed up and like performed on against, in my opinion, the scariest guy not named uh, uh, what's his oh man shot not named Shavkat or Hamzat. I think the scariest guy at 170 is Gilbert Burns, and um, he showed up. I, I, I don't like Hamzat, uh, as neither of us do, but man, was that an impressive performance and a great win. Um, Gore Burns hits anybody like that, you're probably going to sleep or at least getting knocked over and nearly soccer kicked like it happened in that fight. And uh, I, I don't think he exposed him. I, I think he just hurt him. <laughs> and uh, anyone gets hurt by Gilbert Burns. I think Steve Wonderboy said, oh, yeah, getting hit by Gilbert Burns is not fun. You know, And he wasn't hit very often by him. Really, if you look at the numbers, and I think I remember him saying taking that shot was not fun at all. I will say it has put Gilbert in a very difficult position, though, because I do think even in defeat, he now entered that sort of pantheon of sort of the sort of big name, non-title contending welterweight fighters. He's entitled to fight Mm -hmm. somebody who has a bit of a profile, whether that's a Colby or a Jorge Masvidal. The problem is... We know what those two fighters are like when it comes to matchmaking. They're quite difficult to deal with, and obviously there's the legal issues that go with that. So Mm. Gilbert should be getting the big fight. Nobody's wanting to take that fight. He's not able to get the big matches he maybe deserves. So we end up with Neil Magny, and I have no issue with Neil Magny. I think he's a great guy, and I think his work rate is up there among the very best. But I wouldn't say Neil Magny is a fighter who should be getting a Gilbert Burns fight, if you know what I mean. And that's no disrespect to the guy. Yeah, I, I agree with you right there. Uh, Magny is... I'm gonna, like, I think I want to go with a divisional legend. I think that's probably the correct wording I could say there. You know, the dude's resume is great. His records are great. Uh, he's been around forever, and he's always fought at a, at a decently high level. You know, so I think like a divisional legend is probably a pretty good term for it. Um, and I, I like Neil Magny a lot. He's, you know, always shows up, always ready to take on whoever. And I think that's got to be admirable. But man, I, I think Gilbert Burns' stock didn't go down at all with the Hamzat fight. You know, uh, if anything, it might have rose up a little bit because of public perception of him. 
I've got a list here of Go ahead. Yeah, I've got a list here of Neil Magny's uh, portfolio here. These are the guys who he's beaten over his career. Jeff Neal, mm. Robbie Lawler, Rocco Martin, The Leech, Carlos Condit, Johnny Hendricks, Hector Lombard, Tim Means, and Kelvin Gastelum. That is a who's who of top oh, yeah. welterweight fighters. Hector Lombard. Not a great name on your resume, sadly, but what a great fight that is. Like, just a who's who, though, for real, like you said. Just incredible resume. Yeah. Um, but man, it should have been Shavkat here. It should have been Shavkat here. I, I, I don't like this matchmaking. I, I, I agree with what you said earlier. Obviously, it's hard to deal with a Burns or a Covington with the legal issues and how they just are. You know, uh, it, it's it should have been Shavkat here, sadly. Unfortunately, we don't get that fight. We probably will at some point. I do see Shafkat versus Gilbert Burns may be happening depending on how their two matches turn out. Let's talk about Gilbert mm. Burns and some of the strengths that he does have. Um, obviously, we're talking about one of the most acclaimed jiu-jitsu guys in the sport. But recently, Gilbert's become known as a bit of a power puncher. Yeah, superpower. Uh, these hooks are quick. Like they there's there's a a little bit of a wind up to them, it seems like I at least I always imagine that. Um but they're quick, powerful, accurate. He is ex like explosive dynamo on the feet with his power. Uh it is it's haunting. Uh his fight with Usman, great performance by Usman, but it was scary. Uh Usman was worried, and it, that's the closest I Pre-Leon Edwards, obviously, that's the closest I've seen to someone really getting close to finishing uh, uh, Kamaru Usman. It was terrifying. I have to be honest, I have to hold my hands up for this one. I actually picked Gilbert to win that fight. Oh, yeah, I, I did too. Uh, I, I, I did too. Um, so, we talked about his power punches. What I do find quite interesting about Gilbert Burns is... Unlike a lot of jiu-jitsu guys, he uses that power punches as his way to set up his jiu-jitsu to utilize the ground game a lot more. We saw that to an extent when he fought Wonderboy, which I thought was very well done on his part because Wonderboy has always had fantastic takedown defense, but Gilbert was able to get through that, largely through using the power punches to set up his grappling. Um, I will say, though, I don't think he responds too well to pressure. It's something which he has worked mm. on a lot, especially when he was a lightweight. It was something he had a lot of problems with. And a big problem when it comes to Neil Magny is he doesn't do well with rangier fighters. Dan Hooker showed that. And he doesn't do well with mm. jabs and feints, which is some of Neil Magny's best strengths, in my opinion. Yeah, there is definitely some stylistic, uh, not, not intricacies, but uh, curiosities, I guess you could say, well, with, these, with this matchup here. We'll talk about Neil Magny in a little bit more detail here. The most wins in UFC welterweight history. Uh, seven KOs, four submissions, 16 decisions. So this guy is a grinder. He can go the distance. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say are Neil Magny's biggest strengths? He, he seems like... He reminds me of like the Terminator in a, in a sense of... He, he, if you don't put him away, if you don't freeze him in... Uh, <laughs> nitrous ox or uh, nitrous oxide or whatever he's just going to keep coming at you and he, he's just constantly there constantly in your face either putting a jab in your face 
or worse if you try and like really open up your striking against him he's going to clinch up with you he might take you down and he's going to grind on you dirty box with you he's just very active and never stops he's almost always coming forward and putting on the pressure and that pressure just breaks guys like uh, you talked about how he's a deci- uh, very much a grinder um, a lot of his finishes in that crazy run of his resume was him just breaking guys down. Like he he broke Hector Lombard. He broke uh, a multitude of fighters on his way up. Robbie Lawler, like Robbie Lawler didn't want yeah. to fight in that third round. Yeah, it was. Uh, I don't. I, you know, I don't remember that fight at all. If we're going to be honest, right? Uh, oh, it's so it's so rough seeing my boy there. But yeah, it, he just you know. It's very telling. I think it's always really interesting in the sport when it's you have a guy, two of these guys here. You know, Gilbert Burns is oh that guy's gonna knock me out or worse, knock me down, concuss me, then choke me out. And then here's Neil Magny of like, man, that guy's gonna, I'm gonna feel like a zombie walking into that third round. Like those are two guys people historically don't really want to fight uh, coming up. And I think it's kind of interesting that you have the two styles, uh, complete opposite spectrums of it. Uh, that are feared. I've heard someone describe Neil Magny as well-rounded to a fault. And I think what he was trying to imply was that with a lot of fighters who like to take the front foot, they want to get the fight into their domain. So if you are Mm. a grappler, you're going to be wanting to try and wrestle, that sort of thing. He said one of the big issues that Neil Magny has is that he's so well-rounded, he seems content to go wherever his opponent wants to go. So if his opponent wants a striking match, he's okay striking. If they want to have a wrestling match, he's okay grappling. He's not somebody who could sort of like take the front foot a bit too much. Mm-hmm. And I think when you've got someone like Gilbert Burns who does have weaknesses being pressured, you've got to be more assertive. And I don't think Neil Magny's going to be able to do that. I, I, I've heard people, I think that's beautifully said. Actually, I, I might steal that for future Things uh, that that is a very well put on Neil Magny. I've heard directionless before as well, and I thought that was a little bit of a harsh critique. But I, I understand the idea behind it, you know, in the sense of he's just kind of almost too easygoing in a fight of where the fight's going to take place. Um, with it, I, I I definitely can see that. Um, would you say there are weaknesses to Neil Magny's game? He does have a tendency to give up his back a bit. Yeah, I think his neck, like, he gives up his neck pretty easy. Uh, I remember him, like, when he gives up his back, obviously he's either getting pounded on. But it seems like, I, I always think of him getting submitted uh, as a thing. Um, he can't, he's very tough, but he can be put out. We've seen it before. Um, yeah, Santiago, one of my boys, Santiago Ponzanibio did uh, years ago. Um, we've seen him finished. It is possible to put him away. Um, but that's... You know, when you're fighting for so long and you're fighting against almost anybody, uh, uh, he's I, – I really think like that will round in this to a fault. He's not an expert in any area of the fight. Like if you're he, – he, if he's fighting Wonder Boy on the, and striking with him, oh, I'm, you're going to go Wonder Boy. Uh, if, you're, if you're grappling with like Gilbert Burns on the like in a jiu-jitsu match, well, you're going to go with Gilbert Burns like – it's really his strength is his well-roundedness, but that's also his weakness is a great way to put it. So a lot of people don't really understand the matchmaking behind this. I think they're more victims of circumstance rather than something the UFC wanted to do. 
I'm sure they would have loved to give mm. Gilbert Burns a high-profile opponent in Brazil. Which way do we think mm. this is going to go? Do we see Neil Magny pulling the upset here? I, I don't personally. Um, I think Gilbert Burns is a very safe pick. I think it's a very safe one to go with. Um, I mean, I, I think his, like I said, I, I think his stock might have, you know, I think it stayed the same in terms of, like, his divisional standings after the Hamzat fight. Um, I mean, his performance is nothing to scoff at, and he did very well in a very entertaining fight. Uh, and I, I, I think just that kind of aura of him, it won't shake Neil Magny, but it's shaking me here. <laughs> so I got to go with Gilbert Burns here. Yep. I'm going to pick Gilbert Burns as well. I'm going to say a decision. Neil Magny's very mm -hmm. hard to put away, but I see Gilbert yeah. Burns. I could see a 30-27. I think if he does put him away, I, I, I agree with you on the decision, but if Gilbert Burns does put him away, I don't think he'll do it with strikes. I could see the strike leading to a submission, but I think it will be a submission if he does put him away. Let us move on to our core main event. We are going to the flyweight division, and it is history-making for the UFC. Our first ever quadrilogy with all four fights taking place in the promotion. It is Davidson Figueredo, the champion, taking on the interim champion, Brandon Moreno, quite appropriately, it is a pick -em between them. Minus 110 both ways. Appropriate because of the three fights. One win for Moreno, one win for Figueredo, and one draw. So they're even on all sides, and it's even with the bookmakers as well. Uh, we mentioned it's the first quadrilogy from the UFC. There has only ever been one other quadrilogy, which has taken place in major promotions. So a little bit of trivia, Joe. Who was it? Tim Sylvia, Andre Arlovsky. You could tell you were savant. You could tell you're good at this. Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, I because I remember uh, watching the fourth fight on my phone at my grandmother's house and seeing the soccer kick going. Oh wow! Wait a minute, they're calling it off? No. Yeah. 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 So of um, I think it's safe to say, Joe, these first these first three fights between the two absolutely fantastic we've actually uploaded a video on the inc main channel where we talk about like sort of the flyweight and renaissance and we mentioned figgy versus moreno as a trilogy one of the big reasons for that so in terms of entertainment oh, yeah. it makes a lot of sense for us to do this fight in terms of moving the division forward and being fair to other contenders should it be happening i'm so torn on this uh I'm going to try and remain as unbiased as possible because I'm a massive Brandon Moreno fan. And that could be because we're both Mexican. I don't know. I, I hope not. But uh, I love Brandon Moreno. I, I think if you want to move the division forward, you, we should have Pantoja here. I mean, I think everyone in, everyone who's ever watched a flyweight fight will probably agree with that. But I really disagree with that third, that third fight's decision. Um, I've watched it twice this week for this and I, I i don't i still don't know about that third fight's decision and part of me wants that like kind of justice in the world of like we got to run it back because that decision is terrible I, you know i, I think I, I i don't know it, it's really conflicting me internally because i i i hate a division kind of becoming lackadaisical or stagnant because we keep doing these rematches that's why i'm against the usman leon rematch um, only for the fact that I just want this division to move forward. 
But on this hand, I feel like a hypocrite because I did want this fight. In my personal opinion, as somebody who likes Brandon Moreno, I think you would have gone for Pantoja. And I say this for a couple of mm. reasons. I think Pantoja is on a fantastic run of form. He showed that oh, way yeah. at the Alex Perez finish, that he's like finishes or a lack of finishes has always been one of the big weaknesses that the flyweight division has had. Pantoja is answering those questions by getting quick submit submitted finishes. Um, it's a rematch. So that's always a big selling point for the UFC. So you could do Figueredo versus Pantoja too and all the big marketing that goes with that. And it's two Brazilians mm. in Brazil. So I think there were a lot of yeah. things working towards that, which, and again, no disrespect to Brandon Moreno, fantastic fighter. But in my personal opinion, we should have gone down a different road. Mm -hmm. I, I think the only thing that kind of makes it complicated was the Kai Kara France fight. Because wasn't that an inter wasn't that like a an interim fight? It was, yes. Inter Weird. In my uh, opinion, but, though, that know, was done to try and boost up two seventy seven because the main event wasn't going to sell, so you needed an extra incentive to try and make that more appealing. So they slapped the interim fight on. Yeah, because we previewed that card, and I just couldn't remember if it was an interim fight or not. And now I remember the main event, so that makes perfect sense. So, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, that's like the only like wrench in that Pantoja plan there. But then at the same time, I go, why couldn't, why didn't Pantoja fight that Kaikara France fight? I don't know. Uh, I know Figgy was hurt. I know that was the reason why, but I, okay, I, I don't know. It's definitely, it's weird. But I will say this, you brought this up. Uh, the finishes is what a lot of casuals love. Uh, I, I admit I don't think I'm a casual. I hope no one calls me that. But uh, <laughs> I hate Connor guys. I can't be a casual. But <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I love finishes. I love to see a finish. It's exciting, especially watching it live. What a great feeling it is watching uh, an out-of-nowhere finish uh, uh, live, you know. Um, I the Flyweights have been finishing guys lately. Like, flyweight just ignore the quality of the fight, which has been consistently fantastic. It feels like, uh, flyweights are finishing guys quick. Um, I always, I always forget his opponent's name, which is so awful of me, but the match Snell fight from last year that you love, Super we both love it. Yes. That fight was unbelievable and it, a finish and it made, um, non MMA fans on the ESPN Twitter get really, really upset. And, uh, that was kind of awesome, but uh, obviously, Figgy Kaikara France. Kaikara France is a finisher. Uh, he's finished guys. Uh, Brandon Royval, like tons of finishers at flyweight. This flyweight resurgence, the renaissance, as you've called it, is unbelievable. It's my second favorite division right now, probably. And it's a good thing you brought up finishers because we're talking about Davis and Figueiredo. Nine KOs, eight submissions, uh, wins over <clears throat> Moreno, Alex Perez. Two over Joe Benavidez, including one for the title. Tim Elliott and Pantoja. Is this the most dangerous finisher the flyweight division has ever had? Absolutely. <laughs> he is. Uh, he is a scary dude. Perfect. Like that. That red stripe. You know, for the the Kratos God of War thing. So fitting. He is the the uh, the Benavidez fights specifically are haunting. It it's this beloved veteran, you know, and then we have to watch that. Like this guy does that to him. 
you know, and it wasn't like Benavides was a scrub at this point, given it, uh, uh, you know, a little, oh, thanks for your hard work. We'll give you another title fight. No, he, he kind of, he earned the first fight for sure. And uh, haunting, um, a scary moment, Benavides waking up in that screaming in their second fight, terrifying guy, terrifying finisher. It's, it's, he's awesome. He's so awesome. I, it's awesomeness though, which comes with sort of asterisks next to it. Like I'm with you. I mm-hmm. think Davidson Figueredo on his best day is capable of beating any flyweight in this division. And we saw that when he fought Brandon Moreno, he won that fight in second time around, third time around, I should say. There's been so many fights, mm-hmm. I'm losing track of them. I personally I know, scored this is it, the fifth one, right? I personally scored it for uh, Figueredo, the third fight. Mm-hmm. So I agree with that decision. What I've always said about Figueredo, though, is he is the best flyweight in this weight class if he gets every aspect of his preparation right. But one yeah. part of it goes wrong. Either it's a tough weight cut or his training camp isn't the best. It all goes to pot. And that's what we saw in the second fight. And when you add that to a guy who's now 35 years old in a weight class reliant on speed... There are warning signs about Figueredo going into this fight. Yeah. I think we have another two years of fun with him, personally. Uh, he reminds me of, like, Roberto Duran in that sense. You know, uh, Roberto Duran had the infamous no Moss fight, but the story everyone loves to bring up in that fight was uh, how he, he likes to eat, he likes to party, likes to have fun. And, uh, you know, Roberto Duran eating a 40-ounce steak you know the week before the fight during weight cut like you know um and that's kind of the same vibe i get from figgy uh, i'm not i'm not saying he does that i i've not heard stories or anything like that but that's kind of a similar vibe i get where that one thing wrong it can ruin everything and i i find them to be kind of parallel in that kind of regard so let's talk about brandon moreno um, and I find the contrast between Figueredo and Moreno to be one of the big selling points of this trilogy fight because with Figueredo, you had a guy from a very early stage being touted as a potential future of the weight class. With Brandon Moreno, mm-hmm. you have a guy who was cut by the UFC, had to fight on the regional scene, got himself back, and then clawed and grounded his way to the title picture and then the victory. So it's it's the scrappy underdog versus the chosen one. I think that contrast between the two is very appealing to me. Um, oh, yes. What have been the big things for you that have, have improved with Brandon Moreno? How has he gone from out the UFC to champion? His striking is phenomenal. Um, when in, in his first run, he was uh, kind of a scrappier... Uh, I wouldn't say tricky. Tricky implies it's kind of planned like you're planning to strike that way. He was just like a kind of a scrappy sloppier striker. And well, he did have some impressive striking moments. Uh, like the Dustin Ortiz head kick was very impressive. Um, he, he was just kind of there to like, Oh, I'm going to, you know, be, you know, kind of pressure, 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 and hope I can get like some my grappling going. Cause that was his big strength was his grappling. Then we saw him come back. And he had the fur. He had the Pantoja, or not the Pantoja fight. Excuse me, the um, Askar Askarov fight. I almost forgot. <laughs> uh, and that fight was impressive. It was a draw, but it was a very impressive fight. And 
Uh, great performance by him, I thought. Especially Askar Askarov, who was pretty hyped, I felt like, coming in uh, into the UFC. And then he had the first Kaikara France fight. Kaikara France, this devastating kickboxer. And he gets outstriked by Moreno in the first fight. And then he looked very good against Brandon Royville, who is a very awkward kind of throw caution to the wind. Yeah, but very dangerous. Ask Kaikara France in their fight. Very dangerous, kind of trickier, flashy striker. Uh, at least on the feet, it's a, you know, very, very awkward. And he put him away. You know, it was a the weird shoulder thing, but he looked very, very good in the striking against him. And then in all three Figgy fights, he's looked fantastic on the feet. He looks like he's constantly improving, adding new wrinkles. And I feel like his striking has just improved a little bit each and every fight where I thought he was impressive in the beginning of this, you know, comeback to the UFC. Uh, and with his last fight, I thought the game plan and the mid-fight adjustment gets the, in the third or the second Kaikara France fight was fantastic, was spectacular. Yeah. I it mean, it's a big thing that's striking. Go ahead. Sorry. I think it's, we've got to do something about the uh, sync off because I always find myself talking oh. over you. The joys of doing things remotely. Oh yeah. You know, I'll fly out there one day. We'll make it. We'll make it happen. <laughs> you don't want to come up here. Like pretty much the entire UK is on strike right now. Oh, I'll wait then. I'll wait it out. Yeah, um, I have a spare room. You know, I'll try. I'll get yourself like a bunk bed or something. <laughs> uh, you did mention one of the big things about Brandon Moreno, which I think is one of his biggest strengths. He is a very adaptable fighter. We saw that when he fought Kai Carver France. Kai Carver France was actually having the upper hand of those first two rounds. I think I saw one of the scorecards where he, I think most of the judges, I think two judges had uh, Kara France 2-0 up and the other was one apiece. Mm. So he made that mid-fight adjustment in the third round, ended up getting the finish. And it's a brutal body kick to do so as well. Um, I think the thing that really stood out for me um, in terms of Moreno's strengths and one of the things that helped him out in this Figueredo trilogy is his durability. I think Figueredo came into that first fight thinking, I can just easily blow this guy away with my power. But when he saw Moreno yeah. standing in the pocket saying, no, I'm not afraid of you, it threw Figgy off. And I think it's thrown him off yeah. through the entirety of this trilogy. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was... It's it's like a, like a weird stereotype that Mexican fighters have like just unbreakable chins. I can tell you that's not true from personal experience, <laughs> but <laughs> I have, uh, I have been knocked out before. It's not fun. Uh, but it's, um, what's it called? You know, like he kind of like, kind of has that like little bit of a stereotype, you know, to him. Like that first fight, he eats some of the scariest shots I've ever seen at flyweight, you know, right back to having the hand low, putting his chin out, baiting another one. It's like, wow, what is this guy? You know, very Max Holloway-ish, you know, I think is a fair comparison with his durability. And in the third fight, you know, he got knocked down a couple times, but he got right back up. Like, nothing happened. And then I thought would win that round despite getting knocked down. It was it was kind of alarming. Like, he's he's durable. Uh, and, the, and against the guy who has the most power I think I've seen outside of, like, a John Dodson at 125. Have you been surprised during this trilogy we haven't seen as much grappling as you would expect? Because with Brandon Moreno, you had a guy who, on the regional scene, 
made his name more sort of like a grinder, a grappler. He was great at taking the back. Mm-hmm. Figueredo, yeah. we know he can scramble very well. We saw that with the Alex Perez fight, getting that guillotine. I think he has one of the best clutch guillotines in the sport. Are you surprised that the three fights have been primarily stand-up affairs and that we maybe haven't seen the wrestling used a lot more? Is that something that Brandon Moreno can maybe try to utilize a bit, given how the third fight went? Uh, I think... I, I, I don't... I, I can't remember them really grappling in the first fight at all. But in the second fight, the grappling was actually back and forth. Uh, despite the takedown... I think it was in the second round that Moreno had. Uh, Figgy did very well off his back with like elbows to the side of the head. He cut Moreno open and he really swelled up his eye striking from his back. And uh, the grappling was interesting. And obviously Moreno took the back at the finish. But uh, I would like to see more grappling from these guys because that's like a, an aspect I go, well, listen, we've seen you guys box, you know, for at this point. Uh, 13 rounds. Like I, I kind of want to see some grappling, especially when what little we saw was very interesting. Uh, I'm actually am surprised that there really isn't much grappling in this trilogy, quadrilogy potentially. So we have had, as you mentioned before, 13 rounds between these guys. They can't be separated so far. Put your money mm. where your mouth is. Who is winning the quadrilogy? I think Moreno. I'm leaning Moreno here. I think he can get a finish, but it feels so much safer to go with the five-round decision win. Uh, I'm going to add this caveat in. Someone is going to not like the decision no matter what happens. Um, and uh, I am I cannot wait for six months' time for us to get ready for Figgy and Moreno 5. You know? Why not at this point? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean Figueredo has fought this guy four times in a row. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy. I, and like we disagree on the the third rounds decision uh, or the third fights decision. Uh, I got to be honest. Every one of these fights, despite me liking the, the decision or not, because uh, I do agree with the, the first fights decision, um, has been a spectacular. So from a fight quality standpoint, I'm in heaven if they do a fifth and sixth fight. But I don't want that. I I I just want to. Let's just. Moreno just need to, needs to beat Figgy so I can have my Pantoja Moreno 3. Another, wait, another trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to pick Brandon Moreno to win this one. I just think there's too many question marks about Figueredo's prep to make me think mm-hmm. he's got to, again, he's got to get everything perfect. And I think a 35, that's going to be harder to do. I will make a bit of a bold prediction, though, about this fight. Win or lose... This will be the last time Davison Figueiredo fights at flyweight. Because either because yes. if he loses, he's going up to bantamweight. If he wins, mm. I think he's going to say, the cut's too hard for me. I'm happy to give up the belt. Yeah, and make this fight meaningless. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, another thing I just thought about that could add a wrinkle to it. Every chin has a number. Mm. Yeah, you have a select number of how hard you get hit and how many times you get hit. Me and my best friend talked about it with the patty fight of uh, just Jared Gordon landed like it felt like 80 unanswered left hooks. That chin's pretty good, but how long is it going to last? Especially, you know, even with 
these guys who don't have the most power. Biggie hits infinitely harder than almost anybody, it seems like, outside of like a John Dodson at 125. I wonder what that number is on Moreno. And we have seen Moreno get dropped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the third fight, I think the reason Figgy won the fight is because of the knockdowns. Like, he, I, I thought he was, Moreno was winning the round, and then here comes a knockdown, and it kind of created this weird, uh, not just for the official judges, but for the judges at home, the fans, uh, of how much does a knockdown count, score for, you know? Like, if you are winning the round, but you get knocked down, does it go to the other way? I, I thought that kind of created an interesting dilemma in the third fight scoring. So we've seen him get knocked down, something that didn't happen in the first two fights. And Kaikara France hit him a good amount, too. I just I, I just thought about that, and now I'm worried. But I'm still picking Moreno. <laughs> it's going to be very interesting to see. Um, before I move on to the main event, someone mentioned this, so I just want to go on a bit of a tangent. Obviously, we've got Brandon mm. Moreno here, Mexican fighter, competing for the title. And it made me realize, you know, next month we're going to have Yair Rodriguez fighting for an interim belt. And we've also got Alexa Grasso and Irene Aldana on the verge of title fights. Mexican MMA is starting to find its fate. It's so awesome. <laughs> As a, uh, I'm, I'm only half, uh, but uh, I... I basically kind of identify, I guess, as a Mexican, you know, growing up mostly with my mom's side of the family. And um, it is so cool. You know, my whole family is like on my mom's side is a bunch of martial artists and people who at least boxed. Uh, so seeing, you know, and like my uncle trained me who is, you know, full Mexican and like jujitsu and boxing and stuff like that. It is so cool seeing, um, I guess, representation for, you know, me up on my favorite sport. I think it's very cool. Uh, you know, it was cool seeing like Eddie Guerrero and like Rey Mysterio and professional wrestling for me growing up. I mean, those are Eddie Guerrero is my favorite wrestler ever. So seeing a guy like who is like my height, if I, if I never got fat and kept training, I would have been fighting at 125. Uh, and so seeing a guy like, you know, Brandon Moreno, uh, and then seeing, you know, like Yair and all these other fights and all, uh, all these Mexican fighters getting close to title contention, it's really cool. It's just so cool for me. I, I totally understand the the love and praise that was uh, being put on uh, Kamara Usman, Francis Ngannou, and uh, Israel Adesanya uh, for like there when they all three held the titles. I remember seeing that, and now I definitely understand how that has to feel as a, a Mexican guy myself. That's one of the things that the UFC, I feel, have gotten really good at. And I have to give a shout-out to John Anik, because I think John Anik on commentary... Um, the way he sort of brings up the sort of national side of the sport, because mm. I was re-watching the Figgy and Moreno fights to do research for this, and that call when mm. Brandon wins the belt and he goes, Tijuana, you have a champion. My favorite call in, like, recent memory. Uh, that's why one of my favorite moments ever. Like, that, him walking off, like, ah, I won, cool. And then it's slowly hitting him is just... It's it's so organic and magnificent. I I won't talk about it or I'll get emotional. But <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's it's one that's one of my favorite calls, one of my favorite moments in in fighting history. And uh, it's also funny too. Me and my best friend, you know, growing up, Cain Velasquez fans. Um, 
it's so funny to see that the UFC pushed him to be the Mexican star. And I will be honest, the Mexican audiences didn't care because why is he so big? That's not Meg. Is he, are you sure he's Mexican? He's way too big to be Mexican. That was actually a reaction like a, a in-country Mexico had towards Cain Velasquez. It was really weird. Main event time, and we are going to the light heavyweight division. It is Glover Teixeira who's taking on Jamal Hill. Uh, betting odds for this mm -hmm. one, quite surprising. Jamal Hill minus 125 favorite. You can get Glover at plus 105. So let us tell us a tale about the convoluted mess that the light heavyweight division now is. So December 2022, Yuri Prohovska announces that he's going to be vacating the belt due to injury. So the UFC organizes a title fight for the vacant belt between Jan Blachowicz and Magomed Ankalaev. This fight ends in a draw and a second title fight is booked immediately after to take place at UFC 283. But rather than Jan and Ankalaev fighting for the vacant belt, which you do expect from a rematch, where the finishes in a draw, you do run the fight back. Instead, Dana White mm. says, that fight was so bad we're going to do a completely new title fight between two different people. So I have two questions for you, Joe. Number one, how did you score Jan versus Sankalaev? And what was your opinion of Dana White's reaction to that fight? I think I... I haven't watched it since. And to be honest with you, with the whole outcome of the division, I haven't really paid much mind to it since... I think I scored it three rounds to two, yawn, but I definitely could see a draw because that fifth round felt like a 10-8. Like, it felt like a 10-8 to me. Um, I had to go back and watch my own recap. Uh, <laughs> shameless plug. I was good in that video. But, um, and uh, his reaction, though, I thought that was embarrassing for him, if I'm being honest. Uh, like... That fight wasn't terrible. It had some good moments in it. Like, I thought the low kick moments were... I thought that was exciting. I actually remember popping off out of my chair when Uncle Iov, like, realizes, hey, I can't walk anymore. And Jan realizes it, too. And then he moves in. And, like, I thought that was really exciting. Like, that... You know, it wasn't the worst fight I've... It wasn't the worst title fight I've ever seen. You know? I've, I've watched Usman uh, Masvidal 1. You know? I've seen bad title fights. I don't know why he had that reaction to it. I mean, because he left in the middle of the fight. It wasn't like he saw the decision and went, oh, great, pointless. Now I got to run this back. I want a champion now. Like, I, I could kind of understand that reaction. But no, he left in the middle of the fight. He didn't even finish it. Like, that's so disrespectful to the fighters that you employ. You know, I, I. I don't know. I'm, I'll, I'll stop here because I could just go talking about how much I dislike the man. So. Like, the one, one of the things I can't <laughs> get my <laughs> one of the things I can't get my head around is I, I don't know how much input Dana White has when it comes to the entirety of the UFC roster in terms of matchmaking. Mm. Like I can't imagine him being invested in say a Priscilla Casuera fight, for example. But when it comes yeah. to the title matches. Dana's got to have some kind of understanding of what's going to be happening and some sort of input, especially when it comes to like the business and the pay-per-view side. There was a lot of people, be it MMA journalists, be it podcasters, who all knew there was a possibility 
of Jan versus Ankalaya being that sort of slow, plodding, kickboxing match that we ended up getting. So it's like, yeah. Dana's not, like, if it was a fight he expected to be amazing and then it turned out to be a dud, I could sort of understand it. But he knew this was a big possibility and he ran ahead and did it anyway. Yeah, it, I don't know. Like, he, I, it, I, 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 I want to give credit to who said it. I don't know. But it was someone around me, I think, out loud said, he must not watch his own fighters. And I'm like, ah, that's weird to think. But that's kind of the vibe. It felt like he had to have known that the fight could have not been good. you know. And then what happens if Ankalaev, he left in the middle of a fight, which is what really gets me. What happens if the fifth round is turns into you know, Robbie Lawler or Rory McDonald all of a sudden? And it's like, that was a weird fight. That four rounds, it wasn't very good. But the fifth round was insane. Jan gets a, a flash knockout win. Do you not put the belt on him at that point? Because you apparently, according to both fighters, already made this title fight. The cynical side of me, I'm going to put forward this theory, though. Um, we all know that going into, say, sort of November time, the plan was for Figueredo versus Moreno 4 to be the main event. Mm-hmm. But flyweights have always had a reputation for not being big pip view draws, not drawing in attendances. Yeah. Is this the UFC looking at the opportunity in front of them and thinking, hey, we can now do a big name title fight for the Brazil card like we always wanted to? I think so. I think that's like a uh, an unconfirmed truth, you know. Because I heard stories I that they awful. were going to pretty much every Brazilian number one contender and champion and pleading with them to take a fight in January, and none of them were saying yes. Yeah. I, I've heard similar things, and I heard a lot of it was just like, I can't turn around and fight that way. You know, I think they wanted Alex Pajeda on this card at one point, you know? So, and he was like, I, how? <laughs> Like he cuts from like 250 it, it, from like, it seems like that's an exaggeration, but uh, you know, I, that definitely seems like probably what happens, especially with how it seems like, you know, fan reception was to Glover situation going into uh, 252. Uh, so speaking of Glover, we'll talk about him now. He's been one of the big beneficiaries of this whole uh, saga. 33-8 and eight record. Now, he is coming into this fight off a loss, uh, which was to Yuri Prochowski at UFC 275. But in a similar way, we were talking to Gilbert Burns earlier in the show. It's a fight where, even though he lost, he didn't lose any stock with it. Like, that fight was, Absolutely. in the eyes of a lot of people, the fight of the year. Yeah. I, I agree 10,000%. Shows you how great, like, in terms of, like all the all XYZ business side of things for the UFC last year that weren't great. But in terms of fight quality, there was a lot of like fight of the year where you can almost put that in any other year and go, well, that's fight of the year, you know. But uh, yeah, that Glover fight was my fight of the year. It was just unbelievable. And you've got a guy as well who has a lot of notable wins on his record. I've got a compilation of them here. So Jan Blachowicz, where he ended up winning the belt, Tiago Santos, Anthony Smith, Nikita Krylov, Javid Kananiya, Rashad Evans, and then you're going further back into his record, OSP, Ryan Bader, Rampage. 
And before he reached the UFC, former champion Rico Rodriguez. This is like a who's who mm -hmm. of great light heavyweights. Oh, yeah. He's like, I remember hearing about him in like 2008, hearing that the best 205-er wasn't even in the UFC. Like when like Shogun was like, I think about to fight uh, Leona Machida, I remember hearing that like, oh, he's the best guy. He isn't even in, in the UFC. They were talking about this guy. And, you know, then he finally came to the UFC after getting the visa issues worked out. And he looked like a world beater for a while. But it's a big transition as well from the Glover of his early career to what we see now. Like Glover's big mm -hmm. reputation for a long time was being this feared knockout artist, big power puncher. A lot of people thought going into the John Jones fight, he was just going to blow through Jones using his power. So whether you like yeah. or dislike John Jones, he utilized that, did very clever in doing mm -hmm. so, ended up getting the win. And I think since then, there has been a shift. I think the Corey Anderson fight was the big one where Glover started to shift, change tact as it were. And he started mm -hmm. focusing a lot more on his grappling and his wrestling. And that's what led to the sort of career turnaround and ended up getting the belt at 42 years old. Just being the sort of old guy who takes a lot of punishment, manages to get you down, and then just dominates you from there. Oh, yeah. It's got that old guy strength. You know, <laughs> takes you down, can't do nothing about it, you know. It's uh, like the theory of your dad will always be stronger than you. Like, and it's kind of how it seems like, you know, Jan is very strong. He got Jan down and didn't have much resistance. And Jan's takedown defense has always been one of his biggest fortes. And Glover took him down oh, yeah. very easy. Mm -hmm. Tiago Santos fight. Classic Glover or re classic post, you know, career resurgence Glover fight, you know. Like, gets leveled, survives, guts it out, toughs it out, gets on top, gets a finish with terrifying ground and pound. Is this Glover playing to his strengths? Is this something that he's genuinely improved? Or is he exploiting a weakness with the light heavyweight division? Because on the whole, you would say light heavyweight is primarily a striking heavy division. Is this Glover just saying, hey, these guys can't grapple, but I'm an above average grappler compared to these guys who can't. Is he just exploiting that hole in, in the weight class? I think it's kind of in between that, you know? Um, I think for sure he's exploiting a, a lack of high-level grappling in the division, you know? Um, but at the same time, he's playing to his strengths. Like, he's hit... He, when he, his shifting of his style from the big power puncher uh, to the, like, I'm going to use my wrestling and my strike in my jujitsu game uh, was basically him just kind of adapting with the times in a sense of he didn't have the speed to keep up with these heavy power punchers. Uh, he wasn't the most technical striker. So he adapted and it's been working out great for him. It's definitely, it, I always thought that was the strongest part of his game uh, already back then. But now, like, he's had some good matchups where he can really show it off. And then in matchups where it isn't that great, he's still doing it. So I, I think there is merit to uh, both sides of that argument. I think it's somewhere in the middle. Let's talk about Jamal Hill. He seems to be sort of the forgotten man of this saga here. So 11-1 record. Mm -hmm. He's coming into this fight off a win over Thiago Santos. He had that blemish up against my boy Paul Craig, which was his only loss of his career so far. Since then, though, stoppage wins over Jimmy Crute, 
Johnny Walker and Thiago Santos. So that is a big bounce back. Yeah, that uh, that Jimmy Crute one shocked me. I picked Jimmy Crute in that fight and uh, haunting mistake on my part. And I, I have a lot of time for Jimmy Crute. I thought Jimmy Crute had potential to be that sort of top five, top six guy. And he, he potentially still could because he's quite young in his career. Uh, but oh, yeah. It was the moment I really opened up and realized how good Jamal Hill potentially could be. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, Jamal Hill, I liked him. But I was, like, going into the Paul Craig fight, I liked him. I was like, oh, this guy's, you know, got some promise. I think Paul Craig's going to beat him. And then he, Paul Craig, you know. Paul Craig, Paul Craig. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I have a double-jointed arm. But I was like, ah, you know, I'm not going to do that. I think that's out of <laughs> not tasteful. Uh, and, uh, but what's it called? Um, then I was like, oh, okay. You know, he's just going to be a guy that's around for a while. Jimmy Crute, that guy could be around for a long time, though. And then Jamal Hill really cut up my eyes. And then I instantly was ready to watch the Johnny Walker fight. And then I was ready to watch the Tiago Santos fight. It's, he's looked great. He's got a lot of momentum going into this fight. Yeah. Uh, what would you say are Jamal Hill's biggest strengths? A lot of people framing Glover versus him as uh, grappler versus striker. Um, I think that's a worthwhile sort of perception of this fight because he does carry a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Early in the matchup, especially, I think he's quite technical, yeah. but he's striking lanky for the weight class, which is something that Glover struggled with against uh, John Jones and Alexander Gustafsson. He doesn't really do well against mm-hmm. lanky strikers, so maybe that's a strength towards him. Um, some question marks over his grappling, though. It's fair to say, like bearing in mind what Thiago mm-hmm. Santos was able to do. I, I think it's, uh, I, I think striker grappling matchup. Is very is very fair. Um, I obviously you can kind of delve into it deeper and show. Oh, it's a little bit more intricate than that. But I think for a very you know a blanket a quick blanket statement, that's a very fair assumption. Um, I thought Thiago Santos looked really good in the ground against him. Definitely taking advantage of that. And of course, Paul Craig, you know, looked very good on the ground against him. Uh, and uh, he was on top, thinking you know it might be okay. And now he kind of got lulled into the the classic Paul Craig trap. But he gets everybody like that, which isn't, you know, it's not not too much of a knock on him, I think. Uh, but what makes him really scary is his boxing is really good. He's got some good, he has a, he's got some good kicks in there, but his hands are very terrifying. Uh, you'll see him shift stances. Uh, he, I mostly remember him thinking. I always always think of him as like a southpaw guy. Uh, I think it was uh, the lead right hand is how he caught Crute stepping in and just went out uh, very quick very polished boxing and striking and just terrifying one shot power. Uh, his, his shot against uh, Johnny Walker. Yeah, it was a little memed, but which I thought was mean, but it was still, it was terrifying. He caused him sort of like at the top of the brow there. And that's what caused the reaction of Walker. It's um, if you ever see uh, Ross Pearson, I think he fought Davey Gallon and he reacted in a very similar way because he just caught, caught right at the top of the head. And just just threw him straight back, which that's a that's a scary way to get knocked out. I would imagine. I'm not a doctor, but you know, I'm I'm always thinking of like, oh, you got the temples, chin, and all that, you know, equilibrium. But top of the head, I, in my mind, I don't want to punch that because I'm going to break my hands. But he landed there on like the crown, and he go out. He still went out, and I go, well, that's 
that's got to be haunting from a concussion medical standpoint, right? Like, uh, you know, you got the power to knock a guy out like that and your hands are fine. Oof. One criticism some people have made of Jamal Hill in terms of his striking is distance management. Would you say that's uh, mm. a justified argument? You don't really see a jab from him. You know, he, he's lanky, but I mostly think of like lead hooks. You know, or like he might kick or so to kind of move in, and then he then he'll step in with it. Uh, so I could kind of understand the distance management critique, but he does seem to be pretty pretty slick off the counter, off a guy stepping in on him. So he has to have some level of distance management if you're if you're quick with a guy wanting to step in and be aggressive against you and able to capitalize on like a little hole you see there. So I. I I don't really. I would love to see him have like that kind of. I mean, I would. Who wouldn't love every fighter to have that GSP kind of jab in their boxing repertoire, just to jab a guy up? But um, he doesn't really have that. So I can. And him being a lanky fighter, I, I could see that critique there. You know, we all can't be Gustafsons who, you know, used to jab up everybody. Yeah, you could use a Juliana Pena jab. That that works out well. <laughs> just duck the wine mob. Wine mom boxing championship material. <laughs> For me, there's two big question marks about this fight, and it's going to determine how the what the end result is. The first is Jamal Hill on the ground. I I was mm-hmm. concerned with how how much success Thiago Santos had, bearing in mind that Santos was 38, not really known as a grappler, and his knees are completely shot after the John Jones fight. Um, so if Santos was able to find success on the ground. What can Glover Toshiba do, bearing in mind how much Glover's grappling prowess has grown over the years? But the other one is on Glover's side. Sometimes a fighter will have that match where they push themselves so hard, they're just never the same again. You look at like Kelvin Gastelum versus Adesanya, for example. That's sort of like one of the more recent examples. Is the Yeri fight potentially that for Glover? At 43 years old, after a war like that, has his body just sort of reached that breaking point where he's just not the same? I, I think that's that's a very, very solid prediction that it could that it could be that. And I the scary part about that is you you don't know, you know, like how many times have we seen Frankie Edgar have that kind of fight in his career and the next fight, you know, same old Frankie. But and, you know, and Gaslam was a young guy when that happened, you know, so it, it doesn't discriminate age. It, it's just kind of hard to tell, you know, uh, fight years are really tricky to calculate, I, I think. And I, I don't know. I, I, I think I could see it. I, I think the big question for me on Teixeira's side is how are you going to close the distance to get to get a hold of him? That is going to be hard to That's, see because... Yeah, those are my two fears, I think. Because I think Jamal Hill does have some very good movement for the sway class. Yes, which is, you know, uh, back to me crapping on these two top divisions, the uh, heaviest divisions, but you don't really see a lot of that. You don't really see a lot of the, the footwork and movement. You know, it's what makes Jiri so much fun, but Jamal Hill has that as well. His footwork is very underrated. I'm going to make a similar prediction that I did for Glover versus Yarn, which is... Mm-hmm. Glover can certainly win this fight. He's more than capable of doing so. 
if he gets that first takedown without taking any major damage, I can see him getting the victory. Yeah. But there's a lot of possibility of Jamal Hill being able to catch him coming in, especially early mm -hmm. in the fight where we know that Glover has issues because Carl mm -hmm. Roberson rocked him, uh, Kutalaba yeah. rocked him, Santos rocked him very early in the fight. Jamal Hill could certainly mm -hmm. do that. If Glover's able to get that takedown clean, I see it being one-way traffic. Oh, yeah. I think we're going to find out real quick in that first round who's going to win. And I, that's, it's, it's that, like, I guess volatile would be the word. That volatile on one end or the other, you know. If Glover can, can consistently close that distance and he gets a hold of him and takes him down, I think the fight's over right there. I, I would probably at that point go, call it, you know, from, uh, from my couch position, which, uh, you know, but on the other hand, if he can't, if he's starting to struggle to close that distance and he's kind of taking some shots in there, I think that's a slow sign at beginning of the end, potentially. Do you think the occasion could be a factor at all? Uh, because obviously this is a pay-per-view main event in Brazil, 20,000 people, Glover's going to be used to having this sort of crowd on his side. He's used to the big fight. Jamal Hill mm. has spent most of his career in the apex. And now he's going into hostile mm. waters trying to beat the hometown guy. Yeah, I think that's got to mess with you a little bit. It would mess with me, you know? I mean, uh, like another thing too, and I, I, I wrote this down. And I'm not going to talk too much on it because we're an MMA show, not a politics show. But Jamal Hill just seems to be arguing with everybody on Twitter like lately, like nonstop. And that I don't care about that. Like, go ahead or do it. Do your thing. It's kind of my uh, opinion on that. Like, if you want to argue with random people, go ahead. Uh, but I feel like this close to a fight that's got to, I guess, be labeled a distraction. So that coupled with the big time first time with the big shiny lights on you you're not in the apex you have a very hostile crowd something we haven't talked about tonight or today uh the brazilian crowds are very hostile if you're an outsider that's gotta mess with you a little bit right and he's a young guy like you know the experience isn't really there for him that would kind of mess with your mental i think i'm gonna pick glover to win this one i'm gonna say a second round submission um, could I maybe see Jamal Hill having some kind of success early on? Possibly. But I think once Glover gets it on the ground, I see it being one-way traffic. With that being said, though, part of me would like Jamal Hill to win simply because mm. there's a likely chance of the UFC doing Jamal Hill versus Magomed Ankalaev and the UFC having to book that as the Battle of Paul Craig's sons. Yeah. <laughs> I like that you. I, I knew what you were doing, and then for calling him calling him Paul Craig's sons. Damn it! You've you've you made me change sides. I want to see that booking. Um, <laughs> uh, that's definitely your test. Uh, your Jay's test. It's Paul Craig. It seems. Like. Um, but uh, I, I'm I'm picking Glover. I think second round as well. But I, I'm going to stand by my earlier statement of I think that first round you're going to find out real quick who's winning. I think it's that just across the board volatile. Two extremities kind of meeting in the middle. And uh, I'm, I'm rooting for Glover 
because it's he man like he he's him mark munoz and uh uh wonder boy should have a three-way triple threat match for the nmf belt you know the nicest mofo on the planet because uh, glover is just so likable you know how do you how do you know how do you dislike the guy like you know him and yawn yawn as well make it a it's a four-way four-way, four-way match fatal four-way that was the name yeah uh you know get two more we'll have a six-pack challenge but um gotta have roxy in yeah there. it's yeah actually yeah roxy has to be in there and then uh maybe call me biased but i think we're gonna have to put you in there as well maybe. you know we'll just ignore all your featherweight comments <laughs> 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 but um yeah i i'm i'm rooting for clover i it's really hard to dislike him um uh, you know, uh, as a fighter and as a person, it's really hard to dislike him. And I think at the end of the first round, we're going to find out who's going to win. I'm leaning towards a Glover submission. And I think we're going to set up either Ankalaev Glover and uh, or we're setting up Jan Glover too. But in reality, there's only one fight I want at 205, and that's anything that involves Yuri Prohaska. Because <laughs> we, we definitely you know. need some stability in this weight class i was saying this before who's people to talk about who's the big winner of this light heavyweight saga it's uh vadim nevkov john jones oh i was gonna say john jones because he can he isn't here fighting having to worry about these killers uh <laughs> vadim nevkov actually is the perfect name there so that is the ufc 283 preview show on the books in the pocket out of sight thank you very much for that one osw before we lock off, though, we do have a couple of spring cleaning that we do need to uh, get out there. So first and foremost, now this is going to be uploaded online on Sunday evening. So already online is going to be your post-fight recap. You're going to be talking about Sean Strickland versus Nazardine Imarvov and all of the sagas that will be happening over in the Apex. Uh, also as well, mm-hmm. you're going to be making your monthly detour over to the live channel. Uh, so we put this to the public last month. We thought, hey, we're going to be in Brazil. It's going to be in Rio. So we're going to be showcasing a classic fight from the King of Rio, Jose Aldo. We had four nominees mm-hmm. on the books. So it was WEC 44, where Aldo wins the featherweight title. His classic match with Uriah Faber at WEC 48. His uh, match up against Chad Mendes at UFC 142. And the rematch with Mendez, UFC 179. So the public voted for this one, Joe. What are you covering on Wednesday? Is it too late to change the public's vote? No, I'm kidding. Uh, at 179 won. Uh, it's, uh, God, probably, I've covered a lot of great fights on the Retro Review series. And man, that, that main event of that fight, or that fight card, has to be up there as my favorites. I, I've covered like Lawler, McDonald, and one of my favorites ever. I got to cover Anthony Pettis, Tony Ferguson. Incredible fight. But man, that might be my favorite out of all of them, honestly. Uh, the rest of the card, well, just watch the video and see. Uh, <laughs> what other show covers Han Stringer? What? F- yeah, honestly, I, I have a bone to pick with the World MMA Awards. Why weren't we nominated? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Stuff, you, stuff you, Luke and Brian. Yeah, come on. 
Like we'll we'll have a tag team match right now, you know. <laughs> uh, no, they're great. I I'm so glad you got me into watching them. You know, their morning combat's fantastic. Yeah. Um, also, as well, when we're on the subject of the retro reviews, we also have the poll open for next month's retro review. So Alexander Volkanovsky is going to make a bid to try and become a rare UFC double champ. So quite appropriately. The nominees are going to be double champ pay-per-views. So we had four nominees, mm -hmm. UFC 205, Conor McGregor beating Eddie Alvarez at Madison Square Garden, UFC 226, Daniel Cormier versus Stipe Miocic, including the infamous Derek Lewis versus Francis Ngannou fight, UFC 238, criminally underrated pay-per-view with Henry Cejudo beating Marlon Marias, and the wild card, my personal choice for this one, I have to admit I'm a little bit biased, Pride 33, Dan Henderson beating Vandele Silva, becoming Pride's first and only two-division champion. I want that to win, too. I just, I, wanted, I just want to cover a Pride card. That, that card sounds so awesome to cover. Because that was also Diaz versus Gormi, uh, Sokaju versus Little Nog. Oh, that, that's so, back when Sokaju was, like, the prospect, you know? He was that era's Johnny Walker. I'm not joking. Good comparison. Like... Yeah, I just not realized that. I was like, oh, man. like he Because he knocked out Ricardo Arona and uh, and then Little Nog. I think Little Nog first. And it was just like, oh, my God. But that Gomi-Nick Diaz fight is incredible. So the poll is online on the main INC channel. So we hope that people can contribute to it for whichever way you do. Uh, we've also got a couple of Patreon requests for future retro reviews. Uh, so if there is a card that you desperately want us to cover, you can make a donation to the Patreon page and Joe will get around to doing it whenever he has the time to. So uh, before we wrap things up, Joe, so all of the um, sort of social media tags are at the top of the screen there. So if you are desperate to get involved, if you want to speak to Joe in particular, though, follow what he's doing. Once again, Joe, where is the best place to do it? To reach out and, you know, have like a, a chat and... Uh critique me for my controversial viewpoints twitter i'm regardless of my points uh i i'm always you know pretty friendly and cool with it uh as if you've watched the retro review series i always try to interact with fans on there in the comment section but i do stream uh, i'm very irregular right now because i have an awkward work schedule and so it makes it hard to stream uh but uh yeah i'm i'm on twitch usually playing games uh, so usually it's a game just to have me that I can have on in the background so I could crack jokes and tell random stories of my awkward life escapades. We definitely got to utilize the um, Twitch stream a lot more. Maybe we can like stream some like classic oh, yeah. events or like like a watch along or something. I've, I I love the idea. I think you had it where I go back and I re, -re uh, I rescore classic fights. Like uh, I think that was a cool idea. I don't know. I think it was you that had that idea. Hendrix GSP and, uh, going like back. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I've watched that fight once a year. It feels like doing the same thing already. Why not do it on Twitch where I can argue with fans over damage doesn't count. Like, <laughs> but in all seriousness, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. So if there are any ideas, then please get in touch with us. DM me to uh, try and uh, put forward any ideas that we can incorporate. That is it though for the INC preview show for UFC 283. My name's been Carl Bainbridge. That's been Joe Neal. And we hope to Thanks, see guys. you once again as a pair 
for UFC 284 as Volkanovski goes for double gold. Also stay tuned to Joe, he will have his breakdown of Sean Strickland versus Nazardine Imarvov that is coming up on your screen in the next few seconds. This is the INC, thank you very much for watching.